Hello, Detroit and the world. Welcome to a very special episode of Authentically Detroit, where we will be honoring the life and legacy of our dear friend and Detroit champion, Marlo Stoudemire. Marlo appeared many times on our show, and we've put together an episode full of Marloisms, things that only Marlo can say in his very special way. Nothing about this COVID pandemic is normal. Our normalcy has been stripped from us, as were the traditional ways we grieved, gathered, and comforted each other. Our heart weeps for Marlo's wife and children, his friends and colleagues, and the city of Detroit at large. Losing Marlo and so many others is hard and the trauma and grief is palpable. We are anxious to put together the fragments of what is left after this crisis and begin healing. We hope that when you listen to this compilation episode, that you'll feel Marlo's spirit and be comforted in some way. This episode, we remember and commemorate the work, the advocate, the cheerleader, the father, the husband, the life of one of the most authentic Detroiters we know. Marlo Stoudemire. Please take a listen. I mean, at, at the end of the day, I, I'm a kid from the east side who got lucky, to be honest with you. I grew up on Six Mile and Gratiot, uh, you know, in the 48205 zip code. We always say I survived the 48205. And um, they used to call my, my street the war zone. Um, so I was part of the generation that inherited um, the, uh, the impacts or the implications of decisions and things that happened before we were even born and things that happened while we were growing up, like crack cocaine, mass incarceration, uh, you name it. We saw a lot of that, but then on the flip side, we also got to see the authentic organic beauty of the hood when you had a neighborhood when everybody was on their front porch and people raced at night and you were outside. We didn't watch as much TV. When we did watch TV, it was Cosby Show, the regular stuff, but for the most part, I felt a different sense of community. Now in my neighborhood, you know, you go to work, you come home, your kids may go outside, but you gotta stand there and watch them so don't nobody snatch them. So it was a different environment for me. But most importantly, I think I came from a really, really big family where nobody went to college, nobody really kind of did anything beyond kind of the status quo. And for me, it made me daydream a lot growing up. It made me wonder if there was a different life for me. And I think for me, the biggest step for me was really kind of moving myself away from uh, the limitations of my neighborhood and going to Cast Tech because that was the first time I saw the diversity within the diversity of our community. The fact that you had different type of black people living different experiences, going to school with kids who've had families that were doctors and lawyers or going to school with Latino, Hispanic kids or even some Arab American kids. And it just showed me something different in terms of, uh, the, I would say the tapestry of people of color. And so a lot of people just don't understand, like I came up really, really hard. They see uh, where I am now and they assume that I went through college in four years, I didn't. It took me seven years to graduate from college. I didn't have any support. I worked three or four jobs. I worked at a bar, I worked at a, a nightclub, I worked as a porter in a car wash, I mean, at, a, at an auto dealership. I worked so many different jobs just to do what I had to do to get by. Um, literally, like it didn't matter because I was determined not to be that dude standing on the corner that my father talked about. And so for me, the journey always started with my upbringing and my love for the people in the community. So, you know, I hate when people 
uh, look at Detroiters and assume that they're here to fix us or save us. That's not the case. Like you see a lot of these people growing up where I grew up that were products or who were impacted by a lot of things that had nothing to do with them. They were policy level. They were institutional level. They were historically driven by racial and discrimination themes. And then boom, you see the outcome. Not to say that we shouldn't be accountable and responsible for right or wrong, but I grew up seeing that, which shapes my ability now as someone who works in a lot of different spaces. Like I tell people, I speak four languages. I speak fluent business, community, philanthropy, and government. And I wouldn't be able to do any of that without the experiences and intersections of people, places, and experiences in Detroit. And that's my background before I even give you education or career or anything. Like I'm a people person, but it took me years to figure that out. Of our community that is, in my mind, unparalleled. I've never seen anybody do what you do. Well, you know what's interesting? So I'll tell you something that nobody really knows except for like my family. I actually used to have stage fright and the fear of speech. And so if you notice, I'm sweating right now. So every time I speak, every time I get in front of people, I'm always petrified. When I went to college, I didn't go straight to campus at Wayne State. I went through the College of Lifelong Learning through a program that was an extension center for people who came from communities who were either underrepresented or couldn't get right into college. And there was this guy I had in my speech class, I can't remember his name, but he literally helped me walk through my fear of speaking. And he told me I had so much to offer and so much to say and not to hold it in. He was a black man who gave me confidence. And I'll never forget, I can't remember the speech, but the speech that he gave me to remember was actually not about a man. It was Phenomenal Woman. And you know who made that? Yes. Maya Angelou. And so what happened was he made me practice. He made me promise myself no matter how afraid I was, I would speak my mind. But you know, it's amazing to me because in this day and age, yeah, yeah, Orlando's seeing the world right now, and um, I was one of many who supported him in his endeavors, and I'm proud of him. Right, so he's doing something. He's walking in your footsteps in Europe right now, right? Yeah, yeah, so um, not to, you know, pat myself, but I was the first African-American male to be selected for the uh, Marshall Memorial Fellowship through the German Marshall Fund of the United States, and Orlando was selected this year as only the fifth black man to go and represent Detroit and America uh, from the Motor City. Yeah, I was a young pup. I was just getting started. Actually, the first person to ever give me a real salary was Kathy Ned. Um, and then that's how I got connected to you guys way back when. Right. Do you it, remember what you did for us? Yeah. We, the, the project, the first thing I worked on you all was with Kathy was the unveiling of the Genesis Villa. And all of that, like $52 million that Reverend or Bishop Van now was announcing in that neighborhood over there on the North End. And it was actually mind blowing for me because I had never seen black people do that kind of stuff before. So I was young and impressionable and you were one of the leaders over there. And I think you were most embracing because at that time you were over at Vanguard too. And when I walked in Vanguard, I was like, this type of stuff exists because on the East side, I never saw anything like that. So that was really impressionable years for me. So one thing people will, will learn about me is, you know, I'm a fight for, for everything that we need and we should have, but I'm also going to make sure I keep some balance. Now, Brush Park, that's a bedrock development, right? Yeah. And well. so my question is, is that, okay, 
there had to be some level either compromise or somebody as a catalyst to push bedrock to understand the level of how important history is one of the things that i've been talking about with a lot of local developers donna is the need to come into these communities and not try to rebrand them the need to search for the history to have something that actually makes sense to a community and to a neighborhood and make sure that there's more representation i mean i guarantee you if you look at most of these street names in the city they're probably former slaveholders or people who dog black people out so my thing is can future generations see a name like that and have some level of pride but it's more than just putting the name up they got to find a way for that history not to get lost too so in my fraternity there's a word we would use for that it's called ingenuity um and you know honestly when i hear that that that's a that's like so detroit like what we do is when there's a door that's closed or a window that's shut we, we cut a door and cre create our own opportunities sometimes and we still advance, right? She, she, she wasn't deterred. I've been trying to stay positive. I'm looking forward to a vacation where I'll be gone for about, uh, I think eight or nine days next week in Europe. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, for me, um, it's just very basic. Um, just being at home in the morning uh, waking up with the kids, just being really How early isolated. do they get up? They get up super early, I bet. No, they don't do it like we used to. When I was younger, we couldn't wait. My kids, they'd be, <laughs> they'd be like 9 o'clock. We'd be like, y'all getting up? Right. <laughs> um, but one of my biggest fam traditions is that my birthday's the day before Christmas. And I don't really, I'm not a big cake fan. So every year my mother buys me an apple pie. And nice. so I look forward to my mother giving me an apple nice. pie. Nice. Yeah. Oh, y'all have these. Like <laughs> All right, good evening. Um... As Orlando mentioned, my name is Marlo Stoudemire, um, MMF uh, alum, as he mentioned, uh, native Detroiter, uh, father to Ian Shelby in Valencia, and just happy to be here. Um, for me, the title of uh, Black All Around the World um, is really special. Uh, one thing that was special for me, and I'll just hand it over to Kirk, and he'll break down to what MMF really is, Marsh Memorial Fellow, is that I was the actually the first black male to be a Marshall Memorial Fellow in the summer. And then Kirk followed literally right after me. Um, so this is kind of like a small, intimate fraternity. Um, but tonight I'm hoping that we can unpack Yodit and Orlando's experience um, because it's a lot to it other than just the travel. It's the personal uh, journey to become a fellow, to be picked. It's preparing for the fellowship. It's getting there finding yourself within the fellowship, navigating, uh, being an, an American, not just a, a black person, but a black American in Europe, and then also trying to identify what actually you took away from the experience. Yes. Oh yeah, I'm from the east side, six oh, and grass. I wasn't day. always like this. Don't make me think. I man. wasn't always like this. I'm finding that so hard to do nowadays because when you have diverse teams, everybody has different talents and different skill sets. And we complement each other really well. But in certain situations, we also need each other sometimes to be in that room. Some of us are strategic, some of us are tactical. And when you take the strategies out the room, sometimes you get the tactical person. They're only thinking about checking the box and then you lose opportunities. So delegating is difficult for me sometimes because sometimes I need to be that voice. I think there were a lot of people who were early. Mm -hmm. I think there were a lot of people who planted some seeds very early on and a, a certain new demographic is benefiting from some of that hard work. Mm -hmm. That's why I always tell people to make sure that as they walk into these cities, 
uh, whether it be Detroit or others, that they avoid using the word blank canvas or you can do anything here. No, there are people who laid the foundation for some of this stuff. They were early, maybe ahead of their time. And I think that we got to find some balance around that. We have to remember um, that we have to plant better seeds with our young people. We have to reinforce uh, our hopes and dreams. You know, I had the kind of parents, God bless them. They were limited. They didn't go to college. They didn't get to but they did what they could for us. They kept us safe. But they would say, look, go to school, get good grades. You can go to college. What they didn't tell me was we can't pay for it. What they didn't say was, you got to figure this out, right? Like, so those things, or they would say, look, you either going to work or go to school in this house. But there was the never next step connected to it. And I think for me, um, I needed um, probably more examples of how to do it. So it was one thing saying, okay, this is what we expect from you. We expect you to do well. We expect you to do good things. I had zero examples. And and, and that's terrible. But here's the problem. Well, we live in the, I'll just say this, we live in a world where the absurd and the the evil or the just downright despicable has become the norm for a lot of people. Um, and we, we live in a numbers world. We live in a, num- a world where numbers and dollars and, and credit and likes matter sometimes more than human life and just being decent. Every day, people like me, you, Orlando, Kirk Mays, Tanya Allen, you name it, or the unnamed people who we don't know about have an opportunity to create better balance and shift that narrative um, because it dominates. And so after a while, people believe that that's the way that things are and that's the way they'll go. And guess what happens? They accept the status quo. Yeah, I I, I personally, when I hear this, it worries me um, because... um, they don't talk about an investment of the things that uh, perpetuate the crime, the systemic yes. issues, issues yes. the conditions. So, causes, for example, yes. with 67, after it was done, the Colonel Commission port report was done. Yeah. And they came up with like this list of all of these different things. They that ignored were, it, They Marlo. ignored it. Right. And so if you think about it, we're 50 something years later and we're dealing with some of the same issues. And in some situations, conditions are even worse. And so when you know what the problem really is and you choose to punish the people who literally are, they, they look in rap, they call it a trap for a reason. Right. Yeah. So you're talking about oh. a system and people are like, oh, the system doesn't work. It does work. It was never designed for, was, for, for a us. particular people. That's right. And so if you think about stress, if you think about all these task force, if you think about uh, the crime bill with Bill Clinton and all, what they do is they they really increase mass incarceration of African-Americans right. for the most part. If you think about it, people of color and then there's a few casualties of other people, and other ethnic groups who come in that and they say, well, we'll take that. And you know, it's a perfect example when you think about crack cocaine in the 80s and opioids yeah, now, now. Right. You, you, you're talking about cold switching. It's you're talking about now. very targeted right approaches so my question is is that what about rural communities what about gun violence what about a lot of other things where the statistics tilt differently to different ethnic groups what are you doing there and so i worry when they talk about deploying these large sweeping iron fists into communities without any type of balance for whether it be investing in those communities whether it be identifying issues that literally could stop these crimes from happening 10 years from now 
Right. So when you start thinking about whether it be education, when you start thinking about equity and investment and things that impact communities or the fact that you got people who want to wear these Detroit Hustle Harder T-shirts and these, you know, Detroit versus everybody. And they want to adopt that brand and that grit. But those are the same people you won't hire. The thing that I struggle with is that, OK, I don't care how many police you deploy in the community. Most of the crime is nothing that you can target or guess or estimate. They're like, well, we're going to go where the crime is. Like, it's not that simple, man. Some crimes happen in a flash. Some things happen in the moment. So I'd rather them talk about prevention. I'd rather them talk about, you know, uh, creating places that are safer um, versus saying, hey, we're going to show up. After the bad guys do what they do and we just going to lock them up because that's literally what they're exactly. going to do. Right. So that's an American issue. Yeah. Um, violent crime is out of control in America. I yeah. mean, but America is a paradox. It's an oxymoron. It's all of these different contrasts that a tale of two worlds and different realities, because in one minute, you know, we're talking about violent crime in the next minute. Nobody wants to do anything about gun control. Right. You're talking about deploying all of these police officers in communities when statistics know that you're investing more in prison than you are invested in education and helping people. So it's kind of like, wait a minute. Right. I actually think that when you think top down like that, they're really not looking for solutions. Yeah. So for me, <laughs> One of the things that I, I wanted to bring up today, um, there was a couple of things I wanted to talk about, but one was a quick hit um, on, and you know, I'm gonna sound biased. He's a friend of mine, but I think it was important to lift up the fact that um, Nathaniel Wallace was named the Knight Foundation's new Detroit program director, um, which was a big deal for me. And so a lot of people don't realize that Knight is a Miami-based uh, foundation um, that really taps into things around media, arts, journalism, and storytelling um, in terms of how it gets its money uh, out into different communities across America. Uh, I think Knight was founded by former newspaper owners and whatnot, so you can see the journalist and art piece of it. The thing about it is he's succeeding Katie Locker, who did a phenomenal job in her role as director, um, and she stepped down back in April. But I think what makes this more important it's very rare that you see young black men like Nate get an opportunity like that when they're still embedded and kind of rolling every day in the community, right? Nate's the kind of guy that you could see at La Casa at the Cigar having a, 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 a drink or a cigar. He could be at a neighborhood barbershop talking trash with guys, or you could see him on the board serving at the Detroit Institute of Arts. Mm -hmm. And I, I thought it was so important as we start thinking about how money is being influenced and shifted and pushed around the city and who's making those decisions and who they're considering when they make the decisions. I think somebody like Nate is really, really important um, to that equation. And I just wanted to make sure that people know that the only way that we're gonna continue to advance is if we have more people of color who represent the diverse interests of our community in these leadership positions. Now, I love my sisters. My sisters are killing it at the foundation level and a lot of leadership levels, but it's not often you see a dude from the neighborhood, neighborhood, get into that foundation seat, right? He didn't leave Detroit. He doesn't have a traditional Ivy League pedigree. He didn't go to New York and work at a foundation and come back. He's been here as a businessman working in IT, earning his stripes in the community, in the arts community. And his whole objective and his priority is trying to find a way to make this revitalization story a real thing for everybody. Yeah, so, so I don't know enough about Citizen Detroit to comment on it. But what I will say is you're spot on about Nate. Um, and so... 
that's why I was so happy. It was a win. There's a handful of people who I think could do this job. That's the other thing that we got to remember in Detroit. For every time a brother like that gets a job, we know it's other talented people, but we still have to build a fence around him. Our job is going to be <coughs> not only to help him in areas where he has blind spots, because we all do, mm -hmm. but also to make sure that he understands that we're going to back him up. And he's built enough social capital and made enough deposits where when he doesn't have the right answers or get the run, we can't destroy him. We have to figure out a way to support him and give him what he needs because nobody's going to make the right decision every time. No. Nice is if they were like, listen, we learned a lesson from Flint. All hands on deck. <laughs> we going in. This is an emergency for us now. We're not going to wait until diseases pop up and there's issues later on. We're going to dig in. We're going to keep you informed. We're going to continuously telling you what's happening. Like if you do that, because they can't do anything about the fact that it happened, even though they could have regulated them a little better, but it happened, right? So now what, right? And so the problem I have is when they get quiet. Right. So you, you, you know what's interesting about that? I think that's a theme that we all shared. And again, one of the things we talked about black all over the world, you know, as as young black professionals, you know, the mental gymnastics that we have to deal with and go through every day, whether it be in corporate America, being told growing up, you have to work twice as hard, three times as hard. You'll never be good enough. Like all of these things. Somebody told me when I was a kid, the only way you'll see the world is if you join the military. So the psyche that you are bringing to the table when you sit down, even when you are enough, the imposter syndrome is a real thing. Um, but one of the things I wanted to do was pivot really quickly to give some context. So what I want you to do is frame out the moment you found out what countries you were going to. That's number one. Number two, what's the first thing that you did after you found that out in terms of preparation and then the last part of this question, just take us through the sequence, is when you thought about <laughs> the fact that you had to set up your own meetings in certain situations, give people insight. Because I will tell you, when Kirk and I went, this was a while ago, setting up those meetings, oh my God, it ain't a part of the program and you have to do it on your own. I kind of launched it by accident, to be honest with you. I mean, back in February, I was really frustrated um, with uh, Black History Month. I was frustrated with the negative images I was seeing with black men. Um, and I really was neg uh, frustrated with this notion that we don't have talent here. Mm. And um, so I was looking around and I was like, man, you know, I'm sick of this. I said, but you know what? I know people within my network who don't fit that status quo description who are great guys. And so I, I thought about Ron Fournier, who used to work at Cranes, who yeah. was like, you should just do a story every day one day. He said that. And I thought about that. I said, you know what? Every day I'm going to get up, challenge myself before 9 a.m. and write two shout outs, tributes to brothers that I know. And every time I did it, I went through and talked about who they were as a friend, a father, gave their professional background, broke down their resume. Then I told a personal story and then I hit them with a quote from Jay-Z. I put my hand on my heart. That means I feel you're real, recognized, real, yeah. and you're looking for me. And then I left the hashtag Detroit has talent. And before I knew it, I was kind of doing it every day, every day, every day. By the 10th day, my phone started ringing. People were like, man, how can I get on your list? How can I get on your list? <laughs> right? Be before I was done, Orlando, 50 days straight non-stop i never told a brother before i did a post remember i sent you the text 
after I did it. And I was my way of showing love and showing that black men can support and love each other publicly was the first part of a healthy That's community, good. right? Yeah. As I went Say along, that again, Marlo. black Definitely. men showing oh, other black show it's part of a healthy love, community. Man. And it if is. our sons don't yeah. see it, they 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 being taught to hate each other and fight each other. And so I was like, cool. So I did that. In the process of doing that, the business case came out. I started getting called from businesses and, and other people saying, man, I didn't know who these brothers were. Can we hire them? How do we get to them? We didn't even know. We want to start hiring more people of color, but we don't have that pipeline. So I started building a community and I launched roster because I said, you know what? We need a roster and a pipeline and inventory of our talent. And then before I knew it, I started shouting out the sisters, including Donna, because I felt like we needed balance and we can't have a separation between our sisters and our brothers. I felt like we needed to lift it up together collectively and here's the thing we're talking about poverty right so let's mm -hmm. just say for instance somebody said it's 35 percent poverty right that means that it's 65 percent who are not in poverty so i think that the region and a revitalizing detroit is so focused on this talent gap and and, and they adopt it and they perpetuate it and amazon hears drain. it and amazon's like oh y'all ain't got no talent see you later right and so my point is is that talent is not just white millennials riding in on their horse to save Boy. the city Right. And so for me, I feel like the only way that we're going to change that conversation is to take control of our own narrative, tell those stories, put those images out there, build a community, and then people will see the value. And the last thing I'll say before I, you know, you, you can ask me another question about it. But by the year 2050, really 2040, 2045, America will no longer have a white majority. And so my message to the business people is, is that if you can't stay connected and relevant as demographics, trends and industry shift, today and tomorrow you will not be relevant 40 30 years from now and so if we don't invest in this talent and see it as a opportunity this ain't charity this no we actually have value whether you 30 right. 40 50 right Thank and you. we looking around and we're like wait a minute we right here you saying well we understand there is a talent gap but it doesn't represent everything that's it i do want to point out though when you say that in the year 2040 and 2050 that america will no longer be a majority white country that that Well, let me share my model with you. I, I don't get a chance to share the model publicly. So behind it was based on learnings from those posts that I did for 50 days straight. So the first thing I realized, the part one is, every time I shared a story about those brothers, especially brothers who don't have a network and the platform I have, I was validating them and I was giving them exposure. Mm -hmm. So that's step one. The second thing was a lot of these brothers didn't have headshots, bios. I had to piece everything together from Facebook, LinkedIn, Googling, just trying to figure it out without telling them to write these stories. Some of the bios I wrote, they adopted. So the other thing is, is that professional and personal branding and professional development so opportunities for a lot of brothers, especially brothers who are entrepreneurs who don't have time. Right. And so we're saying, OK, we have to create opportunities for these brothers to polish it up and get them ready to help present them so people can buy into them and invest. And then the last piece, which is most important, I ain't got time to just keep talking in circles. I ain't got time to just have all my friends hit the like button and it goes nowhere and we all sing it to the choir. So the last piece for me was this is not going to work or be effective if I can't find ways to connect people to relationships and real opportunities. Okay. It's one thing for people to say, oh, yeah, talented, you know, Pat Eric Thomas on the back. Great. And then go talk behind Eric's back and not hire him. No. So what we're doing and what people don't know is roster has two models in within one. One side of it is the narrative and the game changing imagery. Right. Which the foundations love. But here's the deal. I'm giving <laughs> you an exclusive. OK. Roster 
is actually going to also be a talent acquisition and management company. We don't see Orlando, Donna, and Dewan any different than talent agencies see LeBron James and Will Smith. Mm. The difference is y'all busy working, grinding, and you need somebody who can represent for you on the back end to make sure that you get as many opportunities as you deserve. I, I, I don't mean this to come out wrong. I'm sorry to this man, but can you take Orlando off that list? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. But see, this isn't just about jobs. So I need Orlando, bro. So I need it. So Donna, imagine. Donna just should not wait, wait. Here's where here's where it gets interesting. You don't want somebody all up in the videos, all the dancing in the video. <laughs> so here's where it gets interesting, though. So think about it like this. We book in Orlando for speaking engagements. We help in Orlando do other things outside of his job to maximize his talent. What happens is most of us, we working our ass off and killing ourselves. And when we come home, we don't have nothing left. No. And my thing is we're never maximizing our talent. So roster, what's going to happen? There's going to be a top tier of roster talent in every urban city. I already own the hashtags yes. in Miami, yes. Chicago, yes. Atlanta, and D.C. Right. And I, I do want to just clear it up. I've already told Orlando I want him to rise as far as he can go. Um, I'm, I'm I happy. feel free. I'm I've, free. I do. I'm happy for him to be here, but I'm, I don't believe in trying to own yeah. people. So we're just happy to have yeah. what we do. Um, but we do have an opening. And before you start monetizing this thing, right. can you hook us up? Definitely. We have a so job I need to get that job description for you. Uh, yes. So yeah, just so you know, right we've already away. placed five people in jobs quietly. You better, no. One I of the jobs. I heard, I heard a rumor about one of them. Don't say her name. I'm not saying it's not even a her. Oh, we ain't gonna say. Yeah, his we name got either. a few. We got a few. Yeah. But the thing about it is, right now we're we're building the community. Money isn't a, an objective for me. Next year, I do expect some of the foundations to step up and help us on the narrative change because we really believe that that's part of it, especially as the foundations are also the ones who are powering a lot of these agendas talk, like the Strategic uh, Neighborhood Fund. They need to help balance it out, and they know it, and they Come want on, to do it. Narrative is important, so it's not just about Marcus Lyon coming in town doing his thing. and yeah. it, it should be us, right. too, telling our story. And I like yeah. Marcus, but we yeah. need balance. And what I'm trying to do is just give everybody an understanding that talent is a buzzword right now that's floating around in a lot of closed doors especially when you talk about the region no different than stem was years ago and workforce development was a year and a half ago you know what and that believe in it is it's a tiered approach too as well because the thing about it is is that they will not have an excuse to say that they couldn't find us you right. can't do that. And we will not have an excuse to say there was no real formal process for me to mentor. There was no way for me to help you get on a board. There was no way for me mm -hmm. to give you a place to pitch your idea. There was no way for me to meet a guy like Dewan. It will be a lie right. because our job is to position this mechanism as a tool of connection and opportunity. I'll never forget. She was like, you know, in Detroit, you know, we all run the risk of being social martyrs. Right. We're fighting for the cause. And in the process, we become these social martyrs and we never really reach our full potential. We never really cash in, especially on our major earning years when you're in your 40s and 50s before it's time to kind of sit it down. Right. So you start asking yourself, like, when does that happen? And then you look at somebody who may be less talented. They might have a, a good relationship with a wealthy billionaire. I don't know. Right. And they come in, they swoop in and all of a sudden they're the prince of Detroit or they're this, they're that. Uh, well, and you you're know. like, wait a minute now. I don't this mean it like that. that. No, I know what you mean. I, 
Now, I may be saying her name wrong, but the, the title or the, the headline in CNN says pioneering black traveler Jessica Nabongo uh, completes quest to visit every country in the world. And this sister, um, who is a travel blogger, um, but she's from the D and she's from African descent, uh, both parents just recently um, hit every country in the world. She's being celebrated from CNN all across the world. Um, she's, uh, she's. Uh, I think her parents are originally from Uganda. She had two passports and she's had a chance to really kind of take it to the next level. And, um, you know, just like me, um, she was one of those people who, once she landed that six-figure salary, realized that that necessarily wasn't the end game. She was in pharmaceutical sales, I think, at the time, and she's been hitting the world. And it made me think about something that actually ties back to a teacher. Um, when I was a kid growing up, and I told a teacher, a white teacher, that I wanted to see the world, and that teacher told me, you know, the only way you'll see the world is you're going to have to join the military. I can't see any way for you to see the world. And I was like, man. And to be honest with you, at the particular time, it kind of hurt because at that time I was kind of fantasizing in magazines and books and watching movies, TV shows like Silver Spoons, hoping for a better life. And when that teacher told me, I could have made a choice. I could have accepted that or I could have did what happened. It pissed me off and it fueled me to really push beyond my neighborhood. Now, moving forward, I actually have a master's degree in international administration from Central Michigan University, and I've actually traveled all over Europe and India and different parts of the world doing business and for pleasure. Um, and so I just really wanted to kind of touch base on, like, the fact that you have someone who's showing us that your color and your skin color cannot be a barrier, right, if you see yourself traveling. And travel, I think, specifically for black people, is so important to gain context and connections outside of America, which can at times be very suffocating and exhausting. And when you go to other countries, you go in and you assume because you're black, you're going to have a certain experience and you really don't. It's actually a little more relaxing in some situations. You get a chance to gain some global context, come back, look at things differently, experience some different things, right? So I just just really kind of want to encourage people to travel, right? Especially those who value, again, ain't nothing wrong with it. I got Gucci and Salvatore Felgamo. I got all that too, but it's in moderation. Well, you know, I read that um, travel is actually better for... Oh. But I, I really do want to lift that up because here's the other thing I'm tired of. I'm tired of contests. I'm tired of all of these challenges. Challenges. Like they Bro. cool. They cool. But my thing is, is that you can't challenge and contest yourself out of these situations. But if you can build something that's a, a, a place of stability, a place that's uh, a, a, a resource where, you know, ultimately you have a real chance. And I think the key that is going to be for me, Dewan, is understanding what the criteria is going to look like for people to get grants and things like that and what the qualifications. And I know y'all will roll that out later. I, it doesn't matter to me. But when you think about a number like that, right, I feel like sometimes we think too small. Right. One thing I did learn about philanthropy when I was in it, and I still work with a lot of people in philanthropy. Sometimes when you ask for too little, it makes it more complicated because philanthropy, especially large foundations, they build with big issues. And a lot of times they're not trying to do the little five, ten thousand here and there. Come to them with a five million dollar plan. You guys came with a big plan and it's big enough for people to be able to see themselves within it, but small enough and intimate enough for them to contribute to it. Right. right. Like that's the biggest piece of it for me is like Donna said, it's not painful. But the last thing I will say, what you are also doing is creating an umbrella for us 
that we never had. It should have been our churches. Yes, and I mean, I would just say that. So, so thank you. plantation owner you still didn't have power or freedom to live the life that you wanted to live and so i think that we have to fight back against those attempts to rewrite history well that's 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 the reason why it's so important for us to have you know scholars like uh nicole hannah jones and the rochelle riley's and i always mess up this brother's name is it uh tanishi tanahasi tanahasi uh, coats, right? Yes. Yeah, I'm I'm from Six and Grass. I'm sorry, I mess up stuff sometimes. <laughs> I had to practice that one. But it's important to have people like that um, who have platforms and who have voices who are uncompromised, right? And it's important for when they launch projects and when they have events that we support them, so they don't have to be so dependent on uh, external influences and voices who are willing to mute their voices and dilute their message because we need that. Because at the end of the day. A lot of our history and a lot of the things that are going to be passed on for the next generation, um, if we don't find a way to preserve them and, 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 and make sure that they're, they're passed down, they're going, to, they're going to die with people, right? We always say in a lot of my spaces that every time uh, an elder in the black community dies, so does some of the history that they take with them. And so it's up to us to try to capture that. Absolutely. I want to drop another book on people. So, yeah. so I want to get ready to get ready to peel the, the, the black onion a little bit more. Yeah. Um, but I would be remiss if I wouldn't give a couple of quick speed points because I want to share a few things. So for me in Brussels, yeah, there were two things that stood out was the fact that no matter where you live, didn't. So language. Right. So you got Dutch and French speaker speaking people population for the most part. If you lived in a part of the city where somebody that was Dutch that was running for office, but if you spoke French, you couldn't vote for them. It was like blowing me away. The second thing was when I went out on my own, and at that particular time, there was no GPS, there was no Uber, I didn't have a phone, I was just on my own, ass out, like being honest with you. I went to the hood in Brussels. I didn't know Brussels had a hood. And they talked about the minorities in Brussels, and in America, when they talk about minorities, who they talking about? It's the Turks. So I go to the hood. That's where I learned about this place called The Egg, which gave me the idea for mass. So that was one thing. Second thing was in Germany, there were a couple of things that happened. One thing that happened in Germany that blew me away, two things that blew me away. So you know how we always talk about repurposing land and reactivating spaces? They took us to this park, kind of the equivalent of a state park that had been reimagined. We at this park, it's families everywhere. We're riding a Segway. And the guy says, oh, let me tell you the history of this park. And he points over to this big airplane hangar. And he says, yeah, you see this hangar here? And we're like, yeah. He was like, yeah, this used to be Hitler's private airport. And we were segwaying down the runway where Hitler used to take off from. And when they surrendered and whatnot, at first the US took it over. And when the US flew into Berlin, that was the airport where they landed. But the biggest thing that happened to me on that trip was we were there when Obama came to speak and it was the first time an American president had spoke at the Brandenburg Gate, which is basically the line between the wall at Berlin that got tore down. It's also right where the hotel where Michael Jackson hung the baby out the window, right there. First time in decades a US president has spoke there, first time Obama has spoken there, and the last time I think anybody had really done it 
we got VIP access. So you see where that woman is in the back with that baby? We were that far away from Obama. And it was a special invitation. We got pictures. And so those type of moments happen. And then the last thing I will say is when we went to uh, Warsaw, Poland, and we took a little side trip to Krakow and whatnot, we went to the Warsaw Uprising Museum and had a chance to really experience the probably the greatest and best Holocaust museum. And I'm not saying best from a good perspective, but just interactive. And they took us down into the simulated experience under the bottom of the museum in sewers. And you're under the sewers because that's how people hid from the Germans. And the crazy part about it was the people walking over top of you in the museum were just like footsteps like they were experiencing. And then they took us over to Krakow. And we had a chance to see uh, things around like this gas chamber. And you could see scratches on the wall and you could see like these piles of hair and shoes. And they showed you like the passports and the, not the passports, the books and how people got tricked. They told them they were taking them away and they actually took them. And so the point that I'm making is there's still bullet holes over there. There's still a lot of history over there. And honestly, I didn't feel qualified to really talk about those things in a unique way. But when I did find my creases, I realized that my blackness was a strength because I could relate even though it wasn't me. And so my question to you is, what were the moments where you felt, because you were in a lot of rooms and a lot of talking, and by the way, it's 12, 14, 16 hour days, you tired, you getting up at six, you ain't getting back until 10, then your it's, cohort wanna hang and drink. You, you know, you, you with the crazy folks, you got the people who don't wanna go to bed, you tired. Crazy. But there are moments where you are uniquely qualified to either answer a question or say something because you are black. Talk about that a Fog. Talk about it. So the pro oh, wow, this is huge. So <laughs> the project was called the Detroit 67 Project, looking back to move forward, and it was uh, with the Detroit Historical Society, who um, wanted to take on the 50-year anniversary of the 67 riot, um, but do it in a more uh, inclusive way than they normally had done before. They were traditionally known as Detroit's white museum, didn't have a lot of social capital, not a lot of community outreach and wanted to take the step to the next level as they looked ahead to the future as a way to catalyze and bring everyone together. And so I was hired as the project director like a year after the project had started. The project actually was stalling and really wasn't going anywhere. And I came in and they hired a young lady named Kalisha Davis and a few other people. And I came in and redesigned the project and wanted it to be more relevant to the community. And instead of making it a more insular exhibition that just told a story in one way, we uh, made it inclusive and it turned it into a, a five-year community engagement project that was designed to bring all of the diverse voices and perspectives in the community, whether it be business, community, government, and philanthropy, um, around the historic effects of a crisis so people can find their role today, the relevance of future today, in order to create a better story 50 years from now. And my biggest concern was giving context to, to your point, how we got there, right? People didn't wake up one day burning down business, businesses and buildings pissed off, right? There were things that led up to it. White flight started before 67. Capital flight is something people don't talk about. So we talked about that, gave context to what happened during that week, and then pointed people to where we were in 2017 and literally put out a call to action and four critical imperatives for people to make a difference and do something today. It resulted in uh, the largest oral history archive ever assembled on this topic. Um, it resulted in an award-winning book, uh, over 130 community partners, projects, funding, designs for everyone, not just for us all over the city. 
um, the marketing effort, which I really spearheaded over three years and probably uh, because of the Detroit movie helped us over three years, we had over 3 billion with a B gross impressions worldwide. It went viral. We won Detroit's first ever national medal for a museum. And just recently, we just got back two weeks ago from Croatia, where we invited to uh, the Best in Heritage Conference, which basically hosted the top 42 museum uh, projects of influence in the world to compete for the top prize in the world. And we were just happy to be there. I mean, being in the top 42 in the world was great. Um, and before we left, to our shock and surprise, we finished second in the world for the most influential project from a museum simply because we activated and gave a platform to the voices of Detroiters. And so we always had this mindset, specifically me, that you can't be arrogant enough to think that you can tell the story. Now, one thing I wanted to add to you, Donna, and there's so many layers to it. We did placemaking initiatives. We funded which is the first time a society's ever been a funder, seven mini grants in communities because I wanted the community to have a chance to create something in context of 67 um, to really reflect what they were feeling about it. And we gave them $7,000 a piece. And I was important in steering $500,000 to redesigning Gordon Park at the intersection of where the riot started and got that revitalized. Uh, not on my own, but I was spearheading that in a historical marker there because there were generations of people growing up not knowing the history of what happened in their neighborhood. And my point was, is that we really wanted to take it to the forefront. And there's one thing that happened when I was trying to promote this and get it funded. I went to a meeting. I won't tell you who was in the meeting, but it was in the business community. And some business leaders were saying, we are doing great. You're going to cause a riot. You're going to do this. I was like, wait a minute. We're not doing as great as you think. You're only concerned about the narrative of the 7.2 square miles of downtown and midtown. There's 139 square miles here, right? Everybody isn't seeing that comeback. Everybody is not at the same point that you are. And so we have to create spaces for everybody to get this story out. We're not going to let this go with the 24-hour news cycle. And then he turned and looked at me. He said, man, why would you want to snatch a scab off of an old wound like this? And I looked at him and said, what makes you think a scab ever formed? So for a lot of people, including the people we did the oral histories for, this was healing. The oral histories were actually the soundtrack for a multi-million dollar exhibition that was very interactive, high-tech, high-touch. And then at the end, I told the society, I said, it's one thing for us to take people through this emotional journey, but it's another thing that we had to point people to the future. So for the first time, they did a forward-facing component of an exhibition. It was called the Moving Forward Space. That's where we activated our community partnerships and gave people a way to see how they can get involved. We created a half-century box for kids like mine and others to talk about what it should look like in the year 2067. Most people don't notice when the project started, it was called Detroit 1967. I dropped the 19 because I didn't want to focus just on that year. I wanted to go back 50 years before 67, ahead to 2017, and then to 2067. Right. So um, I know I'm going no, strong. No, no, this is good. I'm glad. I'm glad. This is all really good information. I just want to point out a couple things yeah, yeah, yeah. that you noted. Um, in doing... to celebrate because they've done something great? Uh, to be honest with you, every big move that I've made in my career has been supported by black women. So my mother, my wife, Kathy Ned, Tanya Allen, Marilyn French Hubbard, you, Donna, um, Bina Elliott, the Tiffany Douglases, Yodit Mesfin Johnson, all the sisters who have just been holding it down, the Kim Tris, but my boys, you know, the Kirk Mays, the Nate Wallaces, the Jason Malones, the Carl Jacksons, the Terrence Cherry, Damon Don, uh, Damon Daniels, Donnie Elston, all my boys from Six Mile and Gratiot. Like collectively, I'm a son of Detroit. Everybody's raised me, even my friends, even the young people, my kids sitting here, Orlando. Here's the deal. At the end of the day, we all we got sometimes. So I'm shouting out actually everybody. I named some people. I missed a few people. I'm sorry. And one last thing. There's one white man 
who has invested in me and he's been probably one of the best things that happened to me a guy named bob Riney, who's over at president of henry ford health system who was there when my son was born who sent me across the world he believed in me he 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 allowed me to be trained as an executive in the c-suite like guys like that like the point that i'm making is if you don't have people investing in you find some people to invest is and this is going to lead to my last question with you two um we also have to recognize that when we go to programs like this and, and we land in these different countries, they're showing us the reality of these places as is. They don't stage it, they don't cater it for us. You see what they want you to see and everybody's experience is different. Kirk hated Berlin, I loved it, right? And I saw very, very, very lower level. I went to a lot of NGOs, which is what they call nonprofits. I saw a lot of different things from high level to low level, to people struggling, talking to a dude who was a former Russian mob boss buying up property on the coast of Montenegro. I mean, we saw it all. But the most important thing to me at the end really was what did I learn about me? And to be honest with you, I had some bias. I went to the mall in Warsaw, Poland, and I walked in the mall with a chip on my shoulder. I was the only black man in the entire mall. Imagine going to Somerset and you the only black person there. And I had a chip on my shoulder. You know why? I expected people to give me nasty looks. I expected people to be mean to me. None of it happened. And so what I realized that I brought my own bias. It was the first time in my life that I could be, as an adult, where I could be so selfish, unplugged, no phone, no nothing. It was just about me. And I learned so much about myself. And I think the number one question I've been wanting to ask both of y'all, what did you learn about Orlando? What did you learn about your deep, regardless of the program design, regardless of who you met, what happened to you? And what did you walk away with knowing about yourself? Thank you for having me. Eastside.